Block Talk Radio. Welcome to another segment of Block Talk Radio with Cisco and Falzon, Broadcasting Politics. And tonight we have a special guest, guest author Ryan James Gertesky, uh, author of the They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution. And he'll be on in a couple minutes. I just want to touch on real quickly on what's going on out there in regards to 2020, the elections. And the elections right now are very, very tight. And I think the president is really doing a good job. And the Democrats are not. And I look at this whole 2020 election that as long as the elections go and there's no cheating, but we know that that it's always going to happen with the Democrats, I think it'll be a landslide. And I'll be the first one to say that it'll be a landslide, as long as there's no cheating. I can't promise that there will not be cheating, but if there's not, I think President Trump will win his re-election again. Number two, I want to cover something that really blew my mind, totally. The University of Washington has a college course how to overthrow the government. Can you believe that? A college university actually offering a course on how to overthrow the government. You know how many kids are going to be... And who's the uh, professor? Who's, who's teaching at Cisco? Is it Angela it? Davis? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible how these colleges are totally out of out of sync with the, with the mainstream of the American people. Number three, Joe Biden says that over 6,000 military folks have died from COVID. He said that 120 million people in the United States have died from COVID. Well, Mr. Biden. Yeah, and 150 million died from uh, gun violence. Exactly. So that, that leaves about 40, 50 million of us left. <clears throat> Definitely, definitely. The population in the United States has, has shrunk from 330 million to about 40 million, according to yep. Creepy Joe. Another, the America is facing a teenage suicide pandemic. A teenage suicide pandemic. The kids are stuck in the house, and they're not getting any fresh air. They're not having any hum, human con- uh, 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 contact human interface, and there's an increase. In Australia, in Australia, there's 1,200 suicides, more than actual COVID patients who have died. So, come on. You know, this is, this is, this is where we're heading. This is where we are. But anyway, let me you know, bring on... Tell you, Cisco, Australia yeah, surprised me. I have to tell you, Australia surprised me. I thought they were joining the nationalist populist revolution, but all of a sudden they've turned leftist authoritarian. It's, I, I don't Definitely. know what happened over there. Definitely. Ryan, okay, that was, my, that was our little rant. Right? Uh, hello, how are you? Yeah, that was, my, that was our little rant for the, for, for the moment, and I just want to welcome you again. And I want to touch Thank on you your. Thank for having uh, me. Definitely, definitely. We, it's our pleasure. Uh, 
I want to touch first on your book. I, like I mentioned to you in, in, in the green room, uh, I love the title. When did you come up with the title and how did you come up with the title? Well, the title was, I have a co-author, Harlan Hill, so I had to give him a shout out. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was the last part of the book because we really didn't have, we had the whole book done. We just didn't have a title and we came up, I think we had a huge spreadsheet against a wall. And we were spitballing. We said, what is the most um, – uh, what could be processed by the most amount of normies and at the same time kind of tell you what the book's completely about? And this was just one of the options, and this one we picked. Wow. Yeah, definitely. I, I, it, it I wish it was like a, an exciting story, but literally we were just going through options, and this was the final Can one. Can you guys so. repeat the title, please, for the audience? Go ahead, Ryan. They're not listening. How the elites create the national populist revolution. Okay, thank you. So, this whole situation with the uh, with COVID came into play um, this year, after we were writing the book. Right. Yeah, we were. So, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Sorry. Go ahead. So, this this whole uh, pandemic came on around February, March. And mm-hmm. this populist revolution, did that, did, was COVID the trigger to that populist revolution or has there been a populist revolution brewing up in the last couple of years? Well, we date it back to 1998 as being the first, because there's always been nationalists and there's always been populist in politics in the West anyway for decades. And, and remember, this book doesn't only tackle America. It talks about it on a global context, which is different. And okay. that's why it's kind of a unique book to look at. You know, we go from everywhere mm-hmm. from America to Canada, Europe, Angola, um, and Africa. We go through all South America, Australia. And we discuss it on a global context because it is a global movement. Now, this didn't mm-hmm. cause, start because of COVID. It started because after the Cold War ended in 1998, the elites mm-hmm. around the globe decided to sit there and create a new, basically a new world order. And it was because the Soviet Union, <laughs> Soviet Union had ended, they would, their, their idea of how governments around the world should act or interact with each other was to um, basically promote neoliberalism, to promote the idea of endless free trade agreements, um, to promote liberal Western democracy, even if that meant invading another country to promote it. Um, they, they believed in, you know, that, People, historical people in communities, they didn't, uh, they didn't matter that if you could have a Somali refugee come to America in, you know, the day they landed in America, they would be as American as a ninth generation Wisconsin dairy farmer. That's ridiculous. Right. It's nonsense. It's just not mm-hmm. true. So those things have been boiling up for years and years and years and years. And we discussed them on the global context of how they were slowly growing, was slowly happening on the entire world until – Two things happen at once, Brexit and Trump. They, they, you know, they happen a couple months from each other. And when that happened, all of a sudden people realized, oh, wow, this is going on. And then after Trump was Bolsonaro, it was Salvini. It right. was you know, one election after the other where you were seeing national populists win. It was kind of like the, the, the dam had broken. Um, and it discusses the reasons and the, the, the ways that national populism started. Because also remember, the people who hate national populism the most, the John McCain's, the Hillary Clinton's, the George Bush's, they detest national populism, but they're responsible for it. They're the ones who created it, um, whether they like it or not. So that's really why, you know, it, 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 it's an educational book for elites 
and those with an elite mindset. And it's, it's, a, it's an instructional book for those who are national populists to sit there and understand the issues better and maybe well, make a it, more comprehensive argument for their positions. Well, you brought up a very good uh, uh, individual, uh, 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 I think an important individual uh, as well as with Donald Trump, I would say the two most polarized individuals out there in the world, Bolsonaro in Brazil. Bolsonaro basically broke a streak of so many uh, liberal, uh, communist, socialist. socialist leaders in Brazil. And yeah. he came, he comes on board, and and he totally changes the whole uh, landscape of Brazil. And 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 you and have to remember on. in the context of Brazil, because I we go into Brazil very in, in in we go through South America very in depth because it's not Bolsonaro gets a lot of publicity because he's such a big leader in such a big country. But you remember, there's the Democratic Center in Colombia, and there's the center right party, the, actually the National Populist Party in in Chile. So right. in Brazil, at the time that um, Bolsonaro was elected in 2019, the murder rate in Brazil was the highest in the, in the world. Homicide was through the roof. Um, child homicide was up something like 300% in five years. The last three previous leaders of Brazil uh, left in complete corruption where they were finding money stored in their uh, refrigerators. <laughs> and you had you had a situation of mass poverty. You had a dwindling middle class. You had mass uh, a, a country that is of of there's no common uh, there's no common ethnic group. It's a, it's more diverse than the United States is. I think it's like forty nine percent white, forty five percent black, and the rest is um, native of native tribes. So it's right. incredibly diverse. And you had a mass corruption. There was an, there was a op, there was something called uh, there was a, a government thing called Operation uh, Car Wash. I think that was the name of it. I don't have the book in front of me, but it's in the book. Operation mm-hmm. Car Wash, where they were looking at corruption. They found hundreds of government officials involved in, in mass corruption, like the likes we have never seen in this country. So, but it took these horrendous circumstances where child homicide was through the roof. And corruption was through the roof and poverty was through the roof to finally sit there and say, you know what, let's just try something different. Let's, let's end the socialist regimes. Let's pick Bolsonaro, who is an interesting fellow. He's certainly not something you call politically correct. <laughs> and, um, and give it a chance because we have nothing basically to lose. Well, you're absolutely correct. Bolsonaro is a character. Uh, he was a military, he was a military man. Uh, and I think, uh, Finally, Brazilians came to their senses and they said, listen, we, we, we cannot continue to go on this, uh, on this road because we're not going anywhere. We continue to be, you know, we have all these favelas, all these uh, ghettos uh, sitting on top of the mountains. Uh, Are you Brazilian, I mean, I, by the way? No, I, I've been to Brazil uh, a couple of times. So I, I'm, I, I, I know no, the politics. you're very well versed on it, so I assume that maybe you possibly were, that's all. No, I, no, thank you, thank you. But I, I, I've been there and I understand how. And I'm, I was so happy when Bolsonaro, because I follow, I follow politics in South America and Europe, and um, I'm just a political junkie. <laughs> right. But well, you I know, think, the but, one thing that you're, Brazil you're, you're, has, the one thing that Brazil has in common with the United States, 
is it very much is a melting pot. There is no original Brazilian culture in the sense that there is an original British culture, an original French culture, an original Moroccan culture. In Brazil is very much the infusion of European, African, and, and, native, and native tribes. The one thing they mm-hmm. don't really have in Brazil like we have in America is they're not drunk on wokeism. So it is entirely normal to infuse those cultures together to kind of create something beautiful like Carnival, which is an infusion of yeah. Christian, Native, yeah. and African cultures. It's something yeah. beautiful and something celebrated. In America, if you try to infuse multiple cultures together to create art or something exciting or something different and beautiful, that's, social, that's cultural appropriation. You can't do that. <laughs> so that's why they had a little bit of a different story than we had over here, though they had the incredible crime. But they, they don't have they don't have the incredible amount of white guilt that we have in our country. No, they don't. They do not. As a matter of fact, it's very. I think the the, the experience of being in Brazil and traveling to Brazil. One of the things that I learned is there's there's it's more of a class system more of a social class system uh, yes. in regards to, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not really color by color. It's more by class. If you have a lot of money, it doesn't matter. I mean, a lot of the uh, of Brazilian soccer, uh, soccer players are mostly they're black players and they're, right. uh, they're accepted and they're idolized, but that's because they have right. money. It's not because, so it's a, it's a different right. type of, um, uh, social system. But I wanted to touch Bolsonaro is, is a great uh, character that I, that I look in South America, but another one in Hungary, Victor Orban. Orban. Yeah, Orban. Yeah. That's why the book starts. In, the book starts with Victor Orban in 1998 when he yeah. first came to power. Yes. Because he's been to power. He's been in, people forget this, Victor Orban. He's been in power only, I think, since 1998, all but three years. He lost power for three quick years, but he's been in power in, in Hungary since 1998. Right. So it's a long, well, that's a long, but you have to remember, in places like, in places like Colombia, in places like Hungary, in the former Soviet states and in South America, although they are tremendously different countries, you never put them in the same category, they had a lot of similarities in the sense that they experienced failed socialist policies and they experienced massive, unimaginable levels of corruption and crime. At the time, Orban was, was uh, becoming powerful in, in Hungary in 1998. This is a whole different time. Hungary was dealing with gangs. It was dealing with car bomb. It had a huge car bombing problem, an explosion problem, uh, people using explosives on government buildings. Um, in the former Soviet Union states, the average birth rate was one child, and the average abortion rate was nine. They, an average woman mm. would have nine abortions and one child. People really had given up on the idea of having a future in those countries because everything was decimated when, when, the, when the wall fell, when the Berlin Wall fell. You know, imagine uh, you know, America breaking up into 13 countries. It was kind of like that now where you sit there and say, you know, what do we have in common? So it was a it was a very 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 hard time and and uh, and Orban was the first post Cold War non so communist non socialist leader to kind of emerge and he took the reins and you know he's evolved over time he's not exactly the same leader he was in 1998 but there were signs there where you sat where he sat there and he is saying you know we need to invest more in Hungarian industry and in Hungarian manufacturing 
protecting right. Hungarian borders. And that's partially why Hungary was able to handle the coronavirus so well while other countries weren't, because Orban in his nature is very Hobbesian. You know who Ho- Thomas Hobbes, the, the philosopher? Yes. He sat there and said he believed life was um, uh, cruel and short. Right. That's kind of the worldview that – it's a very conservative worldview. He, that was the worldview he adopted. So when the coronavirus happened, uh, he invested tremendously in protecting the poorest of Hungary. He worked very hard to close the borders immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, during the refugee crisis, he did the same exact thing because he automatically and instinctively believed that uh, mass immigration was bad, that neoliberalism was bad. So he was able to handle it much more, much more efficiently than a lot of other world leaders have. Well, I think also he's taking on the European Union because the European Union tends to be more of a structured dictatorship, which basically tells the members who are part of that union, this is what your budget is. This is what the quota is. You have to allow a certain number of immigrants and this is how much money we're going to give you. So Victor uh, Orban, he took... took, Orban, he took on the European Union. I, I think he's one of the very few who's actually taken on the European Union. Would that be... Well, uh, Orban has assessment? a very different relationship with the European Union because he doesn't... He is not a Russo... He's not a Russo... Uh, a supporter of the Russian government at all. He's very in fear of the Russian government. And Hungary kind of is a little dependent or very dependent, depending on who you're asking, on the defense of the European Union to protect them in case the Russians ever invaded. They do not like Russians, and they do not trust the Russians. After decades of communism, I mean, can you blame them? So he has a yeah, very you know, weird relationship. Wait, I wanted to chime time. in here. I wanted to say thank oh. God for the Central and the Eastern Europeans. I feel they, they are the, the uh, sole uh, holders of Western masculinity. And uh, poss- the Poles specifically could be saving the West for a third time because they've saved the West twice already. And no, I'm not Polish. Uh, I just wanted to say that thank God for those Central and Eastern Europeans. They're really standing right. up, uh, standing up and be counted. Thank you. So the way we describe the EU in the book, the way Harlan Hill and I, and the book is called They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution, we call it a post-democratic system. So basically you have elections, which are very much the sign of democracy. You hold elections. And then basically the institutions continue to do whatever they want, however they want. In, 20, uh, in 2019, when they had the last round of the European elections, uh, the nationalist populist identi- identity pol- identity um, uh, group, which is a right-wing group, they came in, I think, fourth of uh, nationally in polls, including the biggest parties in Italy, in France, in, um, in, in several other countries. They were positive in, Bel- in Belgium, in the Netherlands, and Slovakia, they, um, or Slovenia, rather. They, um, they, were the thir- they were the fourth largest party. They got no, uh, and they're supposed to get the subcommittee chairmanships of several different committees, including agriculture, which may not seem like a big deal, but it has a lot to do with immigration. Um, they were denied all those committees, even though they were in the bylaws of the EU, and they just changed the rules right then and there. 
So people vote and they vote and they vote, and that and they are just simply ignored. Even the former head of the EU says, "You what we want," and hopefully it doesn't make us think. And if it does, we change it, and then we'll just go about our business a different way. When the EU was coming about, they were trying to pass the Lisbon Treaty. The Lisbon Treaty was an agreement between all the different nations of Europe to create the EU. And they brought up for a vote in France and in, and in uh, the Netherlands, and it failed in both elections. So they, held, they withheld elections in any other country, and what they did was they instead had parliamentary votes inside their state legislators, their, their national legislatures rather, and they didn't um, allow the people to vote because they didn't want the people to block their EU project. And so they just went about their business. And they thought they can get away with it forever, and then something like Brexit happened. So hopefully right. more nations will see the EU for what it is, either A, change it from the inside, or just completely leave like the U.K. did. Go ahead. Go ahead, Mark. No, I just wanted to say about, again, those Central and Eastern Europeans, they're hard peoples. For centuries, they've had to deal with the brutality of the Ottomans or the massive size of the uh, Russians and the Soviets. Uh, so, I mean, Central and Eastern Europe has been a hard place to thrive. And these people are, are relishing their independence, and they aren't going to relinquish it like too many dumbass Americans. Right. Well, they are, they're very nationalistic. They're very patriotic. Um, and they're very pro. Um, they're very. They're very pro. Uh, I mean, traditionalist in the terms of they're they're very active in their Christian faith. They're against mass refugees. They don't ha- They don't have the same guilt problem that Western governments do when it comes to their identity. They are willing to sit there and say, "No, we're Poles," and there's nothing wrong with being Polish. There's nothing wrong with being Hungarian or or Lithuanian or Latvian or whatever. In the way that a lot of other Western Europeans, Germans, uh, Austrians, uh, French, are ashamed. They do find guilt in it. Um, And it's extremely problematic, you know, because once those cultures are gone, they they don't come back. A country can can recover from a failed war. It can recover from uh, economic crisis. It can never recover from a failed immigration policy. Yes, I, I I would say that that um, when it comes to the mostly the Western countries like France, the U well not so much the UK right now with Boris Johnson, because I think the Tory party tends to be more 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 nationalist, but I think the Labour now they're party, liberals. Well, I mean Boris Johnson to me it, it seems to be a, a more like. In, in, in the makings of, of a Bolsonaro or, or Donald Trump? No, he's not at all. He's a liberal. Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro has a major, I mean, the UK right now is getting about a thousand refugees a day landing on their shores. He's not been able to even squelch it whatsoever. He walked away from having the, uh, the he's walked away from, from limiting legal immigration. He's very much, he, he understands Brexit, and he got Brexit done, and for that he should, you know, be be supported. Um, right. But he is very much believes in having Singapore on the thing on the on the Thames. He wants to have kind of a low tax, low spending, uh, you know, libertarian esque government, 
um, in England. And so he was never a hawk on immigration. He's never been a hawk on a lot of the policies that we really care about. Remember, he was willing to work with the Chinese Communist Party until he got COVID and almost died. Right. So he's not okay. – I mean, he's lumped in because he's good on Brexit. But that shouldn't be mistaken that he's, a, that he's not a liberal because he's very much a liberal. Okay. I, 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 I thought that his policies were more focused on the economic aspect of it, especially with his signature on, on, the, on Brexit. So I stand on Brexit, to be corrected. On Brexit, he was fabulous. But he's also – I mean, it's, it's very much a mixed bag. He gets a little bit of it. He did something good on rails. But uh, and a few other things, but he's very much he's very much comes from the Margaret Thatcher school of of small government or trying to reduce the size of government. He hasn't fully understood really the crisis in the moment that we're in, and like most Republicans haven't, they just they're still kind of welded to a certain idea on politics that's extremely outdated, um, and that's right. that's the shame. And he's not. He's not there. Maybe he'll get there. Maybe he's evolving, um, especially since COVID happened and he almost died, like I said. Um, right. uh, he's certainly been more hawkish on the Chinese Communist Party since, since, the, uh, uh, like that. since COVID happened. But uh, he's yeah. not a nationalist like Bolsonaro is by any chance. So we come to our president, Donald Trump. What has been the impact of his national populist movement uh, here in the United States and also across the globe. You know, Trump was really Trump is not the perfect. Um, yeah, you, uh, what's the word I'm trying to find? He's not the perfect embodiment of national populism. He's a flawed individual, like we all are. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think that he has a clear ideology. I think he understands things on a gut level, like very few politicians do. He just understands on a gut level that things, the way we've done them for decades does not work. He understands that America has been ripped off by our ally, our supposed allies. He gets that, you know, uh, life of the working class, middle class has been undermined by the policies of people like Joe Biden. Um, he just, he understands it on an instinctive level. When it comes to governing, however, he has outsourced a lot of his projects and a lot of his needs to people who don't get it, like his son-in-law, for example, Jared Kushner. Mm-hmm. So that has been that's that's the that's the kind of problem with Trump. He's great on an instinctive level. He understands issues like no other politician in our politician in our country has ever understood them, and yet. Because he has outsourced so much to people who hate him, who hate his voters, he has not been able to become a beacon of institutional change the way that many people want him to be. Right. Uh, seven three two. Well, look five, at the nine. adversaries lined up against him. I mean, is yeah. there any institution that's in his corner? Uh, oh no, you know, no, 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 these, listen, I'm not, and you got both Democrats and Republicans in fault, DC, and the media, and universities. No. Uh, the problem with Trump, when Trump won was that, you know, like, well, let's say like Barack Obama or George W. Bush, when they became president, there were organizations ready to fill their White House with people who thought just like them. There were institutions, there were organizations, 
bills being written by those people, by those nonprofits, like the Heritage Foundation on the right or, or you know, a bunch of organizations on the left had done that. Everyone was kind of ready to go. Part of the problem was no one thought Trump was going to win, and there were no institutions ready to take the call when he did win. So when he did win, a lot of the problem was he turned to the Republican Party, the same Republican Party who hated his guts for years and years and years, um, were the ones who had to fill his White House, and they filled it with a lot of people who don't like him. Change is not easy. You know, you look at the parties that have lasted for a long time and have created institutional change in their countries. In Denmark, like the Danish People's Party, in Mm -hmm. Switzerland, the Swiss People's Party, those parties, some are out of power now, some are still in power, but the institutions that they evolved and they changed over time, it takes a decade. It's not easily done overnight. So my constant thing I say to... um, to Trump supporters and to people in the know is where is our heritage or group? Where is our Alec? Where is our institutions to create leaders to fill the undersecretary of trade, a name that you would never know if you bumped into him on the street, but they do an incredibly important job because they announced the tariff. Those kinds of things take a very, very, very long time. And I think that Trump by winning was such a spark. We've gotten some accomplishments on, on, under him. It's not been a terrible ride overall. You know, he hasn't done any, uh, you know, everything has, hasn't been bad. But I think the massive institutional change some people were looking for couldn't happen because the institutions weren't there to provide him with the support necessary to fill an administration. Well, there, I think, I think from my perspective, there's so, there's so much, so many special interest groups in Washington, D.C., that's the reason it's very hard to clean out that swamp. I mean, that, 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 um, what do you call that? The swamp? Uh, clean out the, uh, the, get rid of that old, y'all, and bring in the new. And it's, it's very difficult, and especially in a four-year ter- four term, four-year term, you know, it's, 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 he's done, he's done more than I, than I expected. Well, it's very difficult because career pol- career careers, as they call them, people who work in the government, get, regardless of which administration they serve in, they're overwhelmingly liberal, but they are their careers. They work there, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, they work through all of them. They are, they are almost impossible to fire. So Trump has tried to fire them a little bit, make it a little easier to fire people, and some have left on their own accord. But it's incredibly difficult to sit there and try to do something like that. So, right. and, but, so yes, yes, you're right that it wasn't like he had you know, everything working in his favor from the get-go. And at the same exact time, it did not, he did not make it any easier on himself by turning to people like Reince Priebus, by turning to people like Johnny DiStefano, who was John Boehner's former coffee boy, by turning to Lindsey <laughs> Graham. Help, asking them for help did not benefit him. But at the same time, the institutions weren't there, so he couldn't turn to a national populist institution and say, fill my Secretary of, of State's office. So it, it's, right. a, it's, it's, a, it's a complex situation. Change doesn't happen all at once. It takes a lot of time. I appreciate what Trump is on, on an instinctual level. If you're a supporter of his, and you have the resources or the knowledge or the connections available, 
it's time that we build our own versions of these institutions to start affecting how politicians act and react. Because the way the Republican Party has operated for the last, since the Reagan years, is ultimately a failure. That organization doesn't appeal to people anymore. No one wants, the, the great fight of our time isn't on tax cuts and deregulation. It's on the fact that, that the coasts have amassed huge sums of wealth and the middle of the country has eroded. Life expectancy, if you are born white in Appalachia, or black in the Mississippi Delta, or Native American in South Dakota, you're going to die 20 years on average earlier than a person born in the suburbs of Denver, Colorado. That's the problem. The problem is the deindustrialization of this country, the, the managerial decline of our country, the open borders, the mass immigration. That is really our problem in this country right now. It's not on what the Reagan was fighting on. That time is over. And not to, I'm not bashing Reagan because he was a great president for his time, but it's a different time. And it's time the Republican Party caught up and we start fighting for working people because they have truly been forgotten for decade after decade. I'm actually going to work on an article right now about the working class, especially the white working class, and their representation in television from uh, you know Roseanne to the show Shameless. And really how right. life has not gotten better for this enormous group of people, and it's not just whites, obviously. There's yeah. black working class, there's Hispanic working class, Native working class. But life has really not gotten so much better for these people over the course of 40 years. Now, it has under Trump. Wages did go up pre-COVID. But um, we have not sat there and created an economy that really works for us. And part of the problem with the Trump administration, and that I argue in the book, they're not listening how the elites created the National Populist Revolution – Right. Is that you need a national vision. So we talk, let's say, let's talk about COVID for a second. We talk about having to bring supply chains home and medical supplies home and, and military supplies home back to America because we couldn't even build helicopters in this country when COVID was happening because they're all being built in Mexico and all the plants are shut down. So we want to bring these supply chains home. If we leave it to the free market, they're going to go to the Sun Belt. They'll go to Arizona and Texas and California and Nevada because they have the, you know, the fastest, the newest. Uh, and the cheapest stuff possible. But how do we sit there and how do we help that town in Ohio or Pennsylvania or Michigan or Minnesota, Wisconsin, or Illinois that's dying? How do we go to a town that has seen every major industrial institution shut down and collapse over the last 25 years since we normalized trade relations with China and that Joe Biden voted for? We need a national vision. We sit there and say, okay, we need to, we need to redo our, our infrastructure we need to spend a lot of money on it, and we need to couple our infrastructure to make it complementary to 21st century industry. So we're going to get that helicopter to Youngstown, but we're going to build an infrastructure that makes it available to the people of Youngstown to even get that helicopter company to start manufacturing in Youngstown. So, I mean, if you've been to the Midwest like I have, you would think we lost the war half the time. Right. These places are falling apart. But you need a national vision to sit there and say, this is what I want America to look like in 20 years. Now, how do I get there? If that means just the free market, okay, fine. If that means just the government, okay, fine. If it means a mixture of the two, okay, fine. National populists are not ideologues, but socialists are, libertarians are. They are sitting there and saying, how do I provide the outcomes I'm looking for for the least among us? And that right. is what they're doing in Hungary, or they're doing in Switzerland, in Denmark, in New Zealand, in Australia. 
They're trying their hardest. Very few politicians understand on a larger context the way that Trump did. It's just the execution now needs to be perfected. Well, uh, hold on. Seven three two five three nine. Do you have a question for Ryan? Oh, uh, hello. No, really, I'm kind of uh, not exactly sure what the question would be, but I was wondering if uh, you wanted to talk about uh, Biden at all and his uh, campaign and stuff like that. Oh, I'll talk yes. about Biden all day long, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, so what Biden, I mean, Biden has been accused of being a socialist by the Trump campaign, and that's not a line that I particularly buy into. I don't think that he is. But what Biden did this week that no one paid attention to was Biden created his transition team if he becomes the next president. And who was in his transition team? It was Samantha Powers, and it was Susan Rice on foreign policy. If you do not know who they are, that's the mm-hmm. form, Obama's former uh, advisor and Obama's former U.N. ambassador. And they were two right. of the three women, along with Hillary Clinton, to advise President Obama to overthrow Gaddafi, who was a bad guy, but he was not a threat to the United States to overthrow Qaddafi in Libya. And what happens when we overthrew Qaddafi in Libya? It became a haven for human trafficking, for slavery, mm-hmm. for gun yes. trafficking, and for ISIS. The ideology of those two women is to sit there and to support regime change, to support invasion, and to support war. And the people that they had on the domestic side, people like Jeff Ziski, who once again, a name that nobody would know, but him and several other people along with him, um, they sat there and they've called for things like um, a, total, um, a total cut on Social Security. Mm-hmm. That's, and Biden, by the way, has a long history of calling for cuts to Social Security. So what the Biden presidency will look like is it's not going to look like radical Venezuela socialism. I don't believe that. What I believe it will look like is it's going to be corporatism. So favors will be dolled out to Silicon Valley, to Wall Street, to the Chinese Communist Party, who Joe Biden has been, has been working with for 40-something years, you know, normalizing trade relations, welcoming him into the WTO. His son is on the board of their companies. It will be right. favor, favorable to corporatism, and it will be a neoconservative policy of invading the entire world and inviting the entire world. Mass immigration, Wait, hold on, mass Ryan. war. Ryan. Ryan, you don't think that a Biden being elected is going to bring in a tsunami of uh, Bolshevik hordes that are going to just tilt everything severely leftward? You, do you suspect that will occur? No, I don't. I don't sit there and say everything will move leftward, but it'll be moved in the corporate leftist standpoint. So it will move in a, in a leftist standpoint where, where advances will be given to corporations that benefit Joe Biden and his, and his ilk. So the Bernie Sanders socialist wing that believe that the people will get wealthy and, and the government will start doling out and give evenly to the people, that will not happen. It will be corporatism, not socialism in the sense that everyone's going to get a chicken every once a week. It will be that certain <laughs> corporations get favors and get favorability. So when we invade the next country, whether it be Iran or phone blown invasion of Yemen or Syria or Morocco or who knows where next, 
you know, it will be Joe Biden's donors who donated heavily to his campaign, which all the neoconservatives have, that will get all the government contracts, the billions and billions and billions of dollars. Remember, Joe Biden has never voted against a war, and he's never voted against a trade agreement that favored the Chinese Communist Party. It will benefit Wall Street. It will benefit major corporations on the coast. It will benefit Silicon Valley, and it will benefit the Chinese Communist Party. The continued managed decline of the United States and working class people will continue under Joe Biden because that is all he has ever advanced during his time. Right. But I, 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 I have a, a little different perspective in, in, in way. Joe Biden will have individuals like Bernie Sanders, AOC, and, and AOC will push the Green New Deal. Bernie Sanders right, will push his... Right, which will devastate America, the Green New Deal. I know. I devastate know. the West. Yeah, Mark, hold, hold on. Let me, so, Ryan, I see a Joe Biden that will not be able to control. He'll be controlled. He will not be dictating. They will be dictating to him. Well, okay. I agree with you that Joe Biden will not be dictating. Because listen, and I'm not making a joke, and I'm not trying to sound funny when I say this. The man clearly has cognitive decline. You know, my mm-hmm. grandfather died of dementia. I recognize it in older people. I'm not making fun of him for it. I really wish him the best for it. However, it is very clear he has cognitive decline in his abilities. That doesn't mean Bernie Sanders or AOC take over. That means the government he puts in those positions takes over. The Samantha Powers, the Susan Rice, the Jeff Zinskis, the people that you do not know and most of them will never hear of, they will be running the government. When it comes to things like the Green New Deal, I don't think that even if a Democratic Senate and Democratic Congress were together, they would pass it. What they would do is this. They would put heavy new regulations on energy companies to sit there and say, if you are working in coal or you're working in gas or you're working in natural gas or oil or, or whatever, you're going to have to pay all these fines, which the big companies can do. ExxonMobil can. What does ExxonMobil care about an extra million dollars? The small ones will collapse. And what they'll do is they'll start giving out and doling billions of dollars towards green energy companies that favor them. They won't do it by passing a bill. They'll do it by passing regulation. Like, you know, that uh, you know, a toilet bowl has to have only three ounces of water instead of four ounces of water. Uh, right. Little things that we do not even pick up on, they'll do it on a regulatory level to sit there and pass these initiatives. It won't be – we will not be frogs being thrown into boiling water. We'll be frogs in cool water that will slowly feel the boil coming because – and, and we won't even notice it. Next thing we know, these regulations will happen, and we won't have a choice. So those things will happen, but it won't be through the massive change of AOC and, and Bernie Sanders. It'll be through the slow regulatory change that benefits corporations that side with Joe Biden, because that's all he's ever done. Remember, during the Obama-Biden administration, there were a lot of green energy initiatives. And what right. they were, it was like the Kennedy families. Remember, do you remember this back in, I think it was Solyndra, the Kennedy family, yes, um, yes. the Kennedy family groups in Massachusetts, they sat there and they were getting billions of dollars um, from the government. You know, it wasn't the Green New Deal, but people that favor and work and ally with 
Democratic parties and, and Joe Biden got favors from the government. That is corporatism. It's not socialism yeah. per se. We'll still have a capital system, but those in power and those with connections to power will see their wealth accrue significantly. The rich will get richer. The poor will get poorer, poorer and we will have no say in the middle of it. Okay, so I'll, I'll give you – I'll set up a scenario for you, Ryan. Okay. Joe Biden, at the last minute, goes – Bye bye. He, 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 they, the Democrats say, "What you know? He cannot continue because, uh, you know." This is before issues. he's elected president. Before elected, Kamal Harris. Same, same scenario for you. Well, Kamala Harris is very much. I mean, she comes a lot from the same milk. Kamala Harris is a bit more of an ideologue, but we also don't know much. I mean, Kamala Harris comes off as a woman who will do or say anything to accrue power, anything. Right. This is a woman who slept her way, and she, this is admitted, so I'm not making an accusation. She yes. slept her way to, the, her, to her position in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. She barely got elected in California. Remember, in her statewide election, she wasn't even elected for three weeks or two weeks, rather, after the polls ended. They were counting mm-hmm. all these ballots everywhere. Um, and when she was running for president, she told she said Joe Biden is a racist and a rapist. Right. And now she's his vice presidential candidate. Kamala <laughs> Harris believes in she was Indian three years ago. Now she's black. <laughs> she she <laughs> believes in nothing. She is a person. She is Kevin Spacey in House of Cards. She yes. <laughs> believes in nothing, and she will say or do anything to accrue power. She's an extremely, in my opinion, dangerous person. I don't think Very. she has a belief system at all besides power for herself. Correct. Correct. Now, what's the difference? You, you just broke, you know, broke it down into Wall Street, big tech is for Biden. So who's for the president? I mean, it's the working class. I mean, that's who it is. I mean, it's, it's not surprising at all that Trump is seeing a rise and surge in Hispanic support right now across the country. Yes. They are the mm-hmm. working class. It's the white working class. It's people who don't speak politically correct in their homes. Listen, do I wish Trump would speak a little more nuanced and maybe not tweet as much, maybe be clear in his words and not try to make jokes or speak on camera about, you know, injecting Lysol in your veins? Yeah, I wish that. <laughs> Does he speak like several uncles of mine? Yes, he does. So I'm kind of used to it. I'm working class. I don't have a college degree. I understand people who talk like that. So it's not foreign to me. And I don't have a visceral aversion to it the way that other people do. If you hate those kinds of people, you know, if Trump reminds you of the ex-husband who left you or the boss who never gave you a raise or the boyfriend who wouldn't marry you or, you know, the father who never loved you – yeah, you would hate him. And I think, that, I think that truly Trump has broken some people's brains because he reminds people of you know, the ultimate patriarchy, as Steve Bannon once told me. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, the, the working class, and you made a good point about the Hispanics. Uh, actually, uh, there's a rise in, 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 in the Hispanic uh, vote for the president. Uh, I think the, 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 the black vote is going to be a, a surprise. Uh, I think a lot of the swing states, especially like Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania, a lot of those states that have been locked down or still locked down, they're going to have a, 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 
you know, a repercussion, a bad repercussion, because these governors and mayors are, are, are going to take a, they're going to take a hit. Um, I mean, look at that, that uh, I think it was Winston-Salem, North Carolina, when he got off the plane, all those people just waiting for him. I mean, if Joe Biden can get 5, 5% of that, that would be a lot. And he only gets five people. Uh, at a time. Right, because think of it, like COVID has had a very different, we've, you know, we are all going through COVID in America. Everyone in the, everyone in the country, that's my dog, everyone in the country is going through COVID right now, but we're having a very vastly different experience of COVID. If you're a executive or a white collar worker or someone in management at a major corporation, you're doing Zoom meetings and you have, you know, your two to three or one, one to three children you have to, man, you know, watch. It's annoying probably. It's an inconvenience. But you're working. It's not if you're a busboy or you're a bartender or you're right. somebody who sits there and works, you know, at, at a hands job. You know, your your job, your pay for that day is what you're doing. You haven't been working. You're probably living off of credit cards right now. You don't mm-hmm. have a good school to send your child to, even if you have a school to send your child to. So you have a far different life experience during COVID than. Than, um, than those in, in, in the working class do. So it isn't a surprise that, you know, a lot of working class people, white, black, and brown, are sitting there and saying, you know, you want to, na- you know, well, Biden's talking about doing a, a national shutdown on forever. Uh, you know, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's economic, de- that's, that's the death of a lot of people. You know, because one thing we're not talking about during COVID, all the suicides. The amount of mm-hmm. people in abusive situations who can't get out of it, the number of drug abuses going up, things like mm-hmm. this. That's the working class who are suffering through all of these things. Not that those things don't ever happen to wealthy people, but it's especially problematic if for months you don't have a job to go to. You can't go anywhere. You're stuck day in and day right. out seeing the bills accumulate. So it's no wonder that you know Biden's talking about shutting down the country forever, and a lot of working people are like, no, you're going to kill me. Definitely, definitely. Well, I, I, I brought it up on, on the monologue. Yeah, Australia, Australia has had the most recent report, 1,200 suicides. They've only had about 400 people who have died from COVID, but 1,200. So Australia is another country, a Western country, that is, is going through the, uh, the harsh lockdown, dr- draconian measures that have been taken by the Australian government. Uh, so how do you see this, this whole situation uh, with the mail-in voting uh, in regards to the populist movement? We're, we're, we're going to see it's going to be a lot of confusion, a lot of I – think, uh, I think both camps are going to have so many lawyers just ready to go. What's your take on it? Right. Well, I think this is one of Trump's biggest mistakes was sitting there and telling people not to vote by mail. I think conservatives and Republicans should have voted by – should be voting by mail. Um, very mm, much so, because it's a vote by mail ahead of the election is money in the bank. You don't have to worry about it. It's already there. My big concern for our country, really, is that on the night of the election, remember, I don't know, I don't know where you two live, but I live in New York State. New York did not have election results for two weeks in the last primary. Two weeks. If other states operate like that, we may not have election results for two or three or four days. So if the night of the election, Trump is way out ahead, 
I really feel they'll be rioting in major country, in major major cities across this country. And I do worry about, you know, what happens if Trump is up by 100,000 votes and Broward County in Florida, which is a very Democratic county, is mm-hmm. saying, oh, no, we have more votes to count. We have more votes to count. We have more votes to count. And they're finding votes, you know, in cabinets and in cars. And, you know, they try, they try to do that to Governor um, DeSantis and, and, and Senator Scott. Or in Minnesota, where they did it to – that's how Al Franken became a senator. They were literally finding votes in cabinets they were counting, and he won by 700 votes. So – and Washington State has had the same problem with, with uh, Rossi, who ran for governor. So um, where the Republican was up on election night, and they just kept on finding votes, and that's how they thought – Kamala Harris was elected that way. So I think that he should have been promoting, listen, go out, get registered, go vote, um, and vote ahead of time. Because as long as we have, the, they won't they won't not count a vote, even if they find extra votes. But if we at least get all of our votes in early and ahead of time, we will at least have those votes in in the mail. My big fear is, you know, what if there's a resurgence of COVID in a lot of key states, and you have a lot of senior citizens who are legitimately worried? That's very it's very very troubling. It's very very problematic. You know, so hopefully, hopefully the Trump supporters will go out and get and get registered. There are 42 million non-college educated white Americans who are not even registered to vote in this country. You, if we were to sit there, if the president were to sit there, and I told this to Brad Parscale three years ago. If the president were to sit there and register those voters, he wouldn't have needed to do anything come this election. Like he could have told Hillary Clinton voters to kick dust. Everything else we could, we would have done would have just been for show, but he but but so I think that it's incredibly important to vote absentee. I don't like the automatic voting. I think that's very problematic. But listen, if you can vote early, get it in. I mean, if if you're too afraid or you might be nervous, or you're a senior citizen or you're handicapped or you've got kids, whatever the case is, get out there and vote and vote early. Now, excuse me, I I'm going to vote in person. Is that something wrong with that? No, 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 that's great. Go do that too. If you I'm saying if you're worried. If you're worried, if you're you know, if you have children or you have a job that you can't vote or you're not sure or if you're elderly and you're and you're worried about catching covid, there is no problem with voting early. But by all means, if you can vote in, I I'm going to vote in person. I've always voted in person. I I support that 100%. So if you can vote vote in person, go vote in person. If you're nervous, don't be afraid to vote by mail. Okay. And what about the COVID? I'm not afraid of COVID. It's going to be any, I think it's going to go away after the election for some dumb reason. Uh, of course, that's me. Uh, and and I also heard that it's flying through the air, that it's airborne, the COVID. I, I'm sorry, you're off the, I'm off the subject a little bit. But how can it be flying airborne if, I mean, if I open my window, uh, there's going to be air coming in, right? <laughs> If I walk outside, right. I mean, I don't wear a mask. Only when I have to, when I have to go into Wawa or something. You know, I right. I don't do that. I just can't stand it. So is it airborne? Is that is this what's going to happen? Uh, you know, or is COVID going to just drop off after the election? And, yes, I think there's going to be some kind of riots and every other damn thing going on after the election, whether they win or lose, whatever, right? I'm just saying what state are you in? One time, New Jersey with Murphy. You're in Jersey. Okay, Thank I'm you. in New York. Yeah. So, um, 
it seems to be it seems to be there. Yes, it is airborne, but it's not likely. You're not likely to catch it when it's airborne. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor, so please don't take my word for you know. As you know, if you have any right. real questions, ask a real doctor. From what I understand about it, yes, it is airborne, but the chances of catching it via airborne are very, very, very slim. Um, it's more, it's more likely if you do have it and you're in close proximity to the person, that's why you wear a mask. I don't always wear a mask unless I'm in a store. I, I, I find masks to be incredibly, um, you know, I can't breathe really well in a mask. I, you know, I'm the same as you. <laughs> I too. see these numbers where we're having skyrocketing, uh, skyrocketing numbers of people catching COVID and very few dying. I'm healthy. I'm 33 years old. I'm, I'm willing to take the risk and the freedom to make that assessment. That's what I think that many people have kind of lost in this conversation. I, I don't see my grandparents as much. I don't see elderly relatives as much, um, especially if I'm traveling because I have to promote this book. But I'm, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to sacrifice that for my freedom, which is what I think a lot of people have forgotten this entire thing. Give me the freedom to risk my health. I am young. I am American. That's what it's about. Will it go away? Probably not. I don't think it's a conspiracy. Listen, every country in the world has COVID right now. Every country is dealing with COVID. From Iran to Italy to, you know, Spain and, and Brazil and India. So it's not a conspiracy theory, but I, I think that the reason that places like New York have seen their numbers decline so much is that everyone kind of got it. You know, we kind of have herd immunity and numbers have dwindled substantially. Um, and, and I mean, I think there was a study in the Bronx where they had like 30% of people coming back with antibodies. I think just a lot of people have gotten it at this point in these high density populations and we're kind of gotten through it in our system. And, you know, it, it, and I think every reiteration is probably weaker than the reiteration before. And hopefully we can figure out a way to, to deal with it. But I, you know, you can't sit there and kind of isolate everybody forever and ever and ever and ever. And we can't live like this forever and ever, ever. So give me the freedom. If you feel like you're unsafe and you want to stay home or you want to, I will always respect your opinion to take care of your safety as you see fit. I'm never going to criticize somebody for that and call them crazy. It's their life. It's their health. Do what you will. I, though, being American, being a young man, I have the freedom to sit there and say, give me the opportunity to risk it. I'm going to travel. I'm going to do things. I'm going to live my life. I'm not going to live in. So hopefully it goes away eventually. I don't know exactly, you know, how long that is. I don't think anyone in the world knows how long that is. I don't know. Just in my opinion, I think it's going to all of a sudden disappear. <laughs> but I'm hopeful. <laughs> That way. Maybe I I hope that's too. That'd be great. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of COVID. You know what I mean? I'm just not afraid of it. Like most people are, they're scared to death, and um, and that's a bad thing. You have to oh, be yeah. calm. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. People have lost. People have truly lost their minds. I mean, I I'm related yeah. to a lot of those kinds of people. They've just they've lost their minds. They don't use reason or facts or whatever, and so they just don't want you know. They can do what they want. It's their health. It's their mind. And if that, you know, allows them, you know, I have a relative who the other day we were in the middle of the park by ourselves and she was wearing a mask. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? It's, if, listen, if that's their comfort blanket that they need to hold and I go to sleep, that's fine by me. I'm not going to sit there and yell at them. But I think it's ridiculous. You've, me too. You know, that's just my personal opinion. Thank you. 
Oh, okay. No, no, that's all. That's that's my answer. Is I I don't know when it's gonna go away. You know, and you should wash your hands. I think that's the best thing that came out of this entire COVID experience is people washing their hands more. Okay, we only have a minute left on the show, folks. Oh, okay. So, so I wanted, can you hear me? 